Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we get going with this episode, Please be advised that it contains references to violence, mass shootings, and school shootings that have happened in America. It's happened yet again in America. George is on the scene in Florida where another community is in disbelief, shocked by devastating violence. Shots fired. More shots fired. Additional shots fired. The parents of three teenagers learned today their children will not be coming home from school. The parents of seven others finding out their kids are in hospitals with bullet wounds. Police canvassing gun shops and firing ranges within 15 miles of Newtown, Connecticut, searching for more clues about the gunman and his mother. Around 12.45 p.m. today, we were dispatched to Washington Middle School here in downtown Albuquerque in regards to a shooting call. This image, one that has become all too familiar, students evacuating with their hands up. This time in the small town of Santa Fe, Texas, located just 30 miles southeast of Houston. Increasingly, Adam was so troubled he would not leave the house. The familiar images of loved ones clinging to one another. I've always kind of felt like eventually it was going to happen here too. I wasn't surprised, I was just scared. Yet another school shooting. Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, mass shootings, school shootings, the psychology, the profile of shooters in general, and this endemic that is happening in America. We are going to break it all down with Dr. Stephen Curtin, who's back on the program. He's a sociology professor over at UNC Greensboro. He wrote a fantastic article about a lot of this stuff. And he's going to be breaking all of that down in the next segment. First, Happy New Year to everybody. Our first episode back in the new year, new hosting platform that we are using. Shout out to everybody listening to us on ACAST.com. You can check that out. Type in Can We Please Talk 
and listen to episodes. If you want to support our program, like you heard at the top of the show, you know how to do that. Nick, how was the uh, the new year break for you? I know you took some time off. You were off from, from work. How's everything going with you, my friend? Restful, man. Restful. I got a chance to, I think we can be after even our well, no, after our last show, I you know still did a little bit of stuff. Now close up the laptop, hadn't opened it back up until I had to. It was restful. Kids are doing kids are good. It was it was fun. Santa was very generous. That's awesome. <laughs> Again, that's, this year. So that's great um, to hear. Yep. Good time, How about you? Yeah, all, all good, man. You know, we're we're actually, you know, in the in the process of of moving out of New York City. So more on that in, in, in the coming weeks. Folks, but, this man has moved. This is your third move since the show has started? Yes. The Leons are on a move again to to a house and, and a new recording uh, area for, for me. So I don't have to deal with, you know, shared space here as you get to see how some of the sausage is made here. Um, let's transition into our main topic of mass shootings. Um, you heard, you know, the, the segment that played at the top of this, of all of the media sound bites about mass shootings that have happened in this country in the last over a 12 13 year period there's been about you know close to 1400 people in the united states have been killed in mass shootings okay 947 more were wounded and over 240 mass shootings an average of about 20 shootings a year man this is heartbreaking stuff as you see this stuff play out on the news and specifically school shootings you know, among these casualties, there's at least 362 children and teens that have been killed, law enforcement officers wounded and killed. These numbers are staggering, yet they represent just a small, per, a small, small portion of the lives forever changed after a mass shooting shakes a community, shakes a community with terror and grief. Um, Nick, I know we talked about a while back, we talked about when we had Frank Figluzian and the Oxford shooting, we talked about the issues in this country. You know, there's the gun debate, right? Uh, a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. And there's that whole argument. And then there's, you know, how do we get kids, you know, uh, mentally sound, you know, warning signs, learn about these early warning signs so we don't have what happened in Oxford. And then you got something that we didn't even think of, uh, the parents, right? Something we talked with Dr. Kirtan about. You saw what happened with the parents in Oxford. Right. These are parents that are texting their kid, encouraging these thoughts and and, you know, not locking their gun. And and now they're being charged criminally. Um, there's so many statistical layers to this. And it's however I say it, however you say it, it's tragic. It's unfortunate. A lot of it's preventable. But even at a certain level, and Dr. Kirsten tells us later in, in the next segment, uh, human nature is unpredictable. Right. When you think of mass shootings, school shootings, everything that's happened, you know, and it's played out over the last 20, 30 years, I know statistically I gave 13 year look, but what comes to mind for you when you think of, of mass shootings and school shootings that have happened in this country? That it's about as, as American as apple pie or baseball. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't mean to be cynical about, well, I do mean to be cynical about it. It's, it's shocking uh, that as a country, we can't get this one right. Um, you know, whether it's the gun debate, whether it's the conversation about how do we better understand the way social media works, um, having better having restrictions, period, on who has access to a social media account. We govern nothing in these situations and it results in this level of violence. Um, we are not the only country on this planet where we've had situations like this, but we certainly lead the league in it. And that's 
that to me is the most powerful data point that as a country, you know, we rage is an industry for us. You know, it's what we see play out online. It's what we see that fuels gun purchases. It's what we see that leads to violence, not just in schools, but in movie theaters and churches, uh, in office buildings. And there's something just sadly very American about it. So when you ask me that question, my response is always, there's something about mass shootings and the red, white, and blue that just seem to hang together. And it's, it, it, it makes me sad as an American to, to always sort of come back to that. In the next segment, and when we come back after the break, Dr. Kirtan is going to break down all of this, the profiles of shooters and the research that he's done around this, because it's really fascinating stuff. When you start to look back and peel the onion and you think, who, who is committing all these shootings? Well, it's not women, right? It's, it's men. And there's a percentage of men that are doing this because of ego, fragility, Right. And he breaks all of this down in a scholarly looking at it from a scholarly sociological perspective. When we come back after the break, Dr. Stephen Kirtan on this endemic of mass shootings and school shootings in America. Today's episode of the pod is presented by Pair.com. Nick, did you have a business or you need a website? I do, man. I actually real talk. NickSaveri.com, I think as of last year, closed down. I had a website. Oh, thank for, God. Oh, man. Wow. I don't know. We're doing this now. We're doing I it. Okay. I mean, All what right. was, what was on NickSaveri.com? <laughs> it was, it, you know, when I was, when back when I was blogging and previously I had used other blogging host services, but it was awesome to have, you know, like a URL, like my very own, but right. you know, sadly I didn't keep up with content. Uh, and then eventually the, the domain expired and hopefully, you know, there's no other Nick Severi that's taken it, but yeah, I'm definitely looking for a new place to host, man. I, I need all those kinds of resources and ways to do it in a way that makes it for you know someone like me, just simple, easy, get it up there, update content and, and keep it fresh. Well, Nick, you're going to be able to love this and use this product because choosing a website hosting company makes it simple. With Pair Networks, Pair has over 20 years experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. They make it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop page design, which I love. They have guaranteed U.S.-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. Nick, you get one free month to- Nixavary.com for free for a month? Yeah. I'm back in. <laughs> Nixavary.com for free that no one will go on. I, I, I'm I not going on that site. But, <laughs> and if that's a competing site, I'm suing you in this clause. <laughs> Listen, see for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit Pair.com slash free. Get your first month of website hosting for free and enter the promo code QUICKSTART. Q-U-I-C-K-S-T-A-R-T. That's pair.com slash free promo code quick start. And you're going to get started today. All right. We talked about it in the last segment. Dr. Stephen Kirtan is back with us. He's a sociology professor over at UNC Greensboro. Dr. Kirtan, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for having back on the podcast with us. All right. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. I mean, hey, welcome to the two-time club. Two-time club. Only a few, only a few people in that. I, I don't think we have any three timers yet. Uh, a couple okay. of invites coming on yeah. soon, so I want yeah. you to feel honored in that regard. But uh, no, I, do. I do, yeah. Listen, we had, um, we were talking about this earlier uh, before you hopped on about mass shootings and the statistics around mass shootings over the last since two thousand nine, and obviously our country has a, a terrible history with this in particular and school shootings. Um, but and the reason why we reached out to you, there was a chapter in a book that you had sent over to us about yeah. 
the type of people that are involved in these shootings. It's typically mm-hmm. males and it's right. a lot of white males. And you wrote a chapter about hulking out white males response to bullying and humiliation, rejection, isolation, and perceived yes. injustice in an academic setting. I would love for you to take our audience inside your findings within this chapter, give our audience an overview. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, just generally speaking, uh, what I did was look at mass shootings and, you know, I'll define that in a second. Um, from 1996 to 2018, um, I, I didn't name the shooters. Uh, I just spoke about the schools because I didn't want to give the shooters that kind of press, if you will. And so when we think about uh, mass shootings, um, there were, I counted as 28. And when you think about what mass shooting is, it says three or more deaths as a result of a shooter coming to a school during school hours. So you have to sort of break that into a situation where you become clearly defined of what you're talking about. A lot of what America is hearing is we're lumping mass shootings or shooting events if they just occurred on a campus, even if it's not school hours. So schools may not even have students there. It could be some after school programs or believe it or not, people hang out at schools because of whether it's a basketball court or anything like that. I didn't want to concentrate on it. I wanted to concentrate on the fact that students were in school at that time. So that gave me from 1996 to 2018, 28 mass shootings. So that's how I it. Three or more uh, people had been uh, victim of it. So when you break all of that down, uh, out of those 28, you had 75% were done by white males, 21 of those 28. Black males, black female combined, three. Asian, two. Uh, Native American, one. So um, just the, the gist of it in terms of mass shootings, there is a clear typology. And some will say, oh, no, well, you know, you didn't include targeted. And we'll talk about targeted in a second because there's some clear distinction between mass and rampage. When you think about mass and rampage, um, you're shooting at symbols. And that's why oftentimes you'll you'll hear situations where, oh, what a shooter entered a building, even though he or he was being bullied, uh, he shot the first person that he saw. And so oftentimes when you get into mass murder or righteous slaughter, the first kill is sort of the way of clarifying that this is what I really came to do. Oftentimes, and I know it sounds morbid, um, but Jack Katz wrote about the moral and sensual attractions to doing evil. And he talked about how shooters are originally dizzy and they're not clear about what they want to do until after that first kill. After that first kill, it becomes easier to do. Now, for those who have suicide ideation, they kill their parents first. So they already got those two kills out the way. They're on their way to school. And it's usually some innocent bystander that serves as some symbol of their bullying. So they may not actually get to the person or people that they felt bully them, ridicule them. And we'll get into all that in a second, just giving the typology of what brings people to do a mass shooting. And they may just start shooting and just shoot for the fact that they want to eliminate as many people as they possibly can. And we'll get to what that actually means for people who are pursuing some type of redefinition of who they are. All this is going to make sense in a second. So when you think about uh, this idea of, okay, well, why are we looking at white males? Mass shootings, white males, three or more. When you start talking about targeted shootings, you're talking about black males. What's the difference? Targeted shootings are individuals who have a problem with an individual and they go get that individual. All right. They're not looking for a symbol or anything like that. Now, when you get into gang shootings, 
Um, even those are targeted in a sense that they're shooting at people who are affiliated in some way. So again, what I'm trying to do is to make people un understand the color line without trying to put some sort of discrimination on it. Like, okay, he's just talking about this is what's racially available to people. So I want to start uh, with his idea of white male socialization, black male socialization. And this is in terms of why you get mass shootings, uh, particularly amongst white males, when you get targeted shooting, particularly amongst black males. So I'll start with black privilege. People don't like black privilege. Well, we're talking about white privilege. Start with black privilege. Black privilege is, is a class term. It's, a, it's like those individuals who have had an opportunity to participate in black flight, just like they talk about white flight. So there are a community of blacks, uh, bourgeoisie blacks, uh, working class blacks who absolutely want, don't want to have anything to do with what they call zone one or zone two blacks. So those lower class blacks, those permanent underclass blacks. So that's a form of black privilege. Like we're, we're in terms of our class stratification, we're not like them. All right. We're better than them. That's black privilege. We are from what we would call decent families. And uh, Elijah Anderson talks about the idea of decent families with the moral value system that's consistent with mainstream America. And when you start talking about uh, the other sort of permanent underclass blacks, where your targeted shooting shooters are most likely to come from, those who reside in gang neighborhoods, those who abide by a code of the street, uh, those individuals uh, are being socialized under the condition that might makes right, that respect comes with reputation of being powerful or dynamics that you can make people do uh, what they don't want to do. If you have a problem with someone, you go get that person and not sort of a symbol of what that person represents. So you're not going to shoot up your entire school. You're going to shoot up either somebody who knows them, affiliated with them some kind of way, or them, or family members or something like that. So that's Black privilege, that whole idea of you have Black folks who say, I'm stratified in such a way that I'm not like them. Those are the permanent underclass Blacks. We don't have anything to do with them. With permanent underclass Blacks comes a different socialization. And with that socialization comes with the code of the street that says you go after your target. You won't be disrespected by your target. Pivot from that. Now there's white privilege. And we go from, let's go back to Black privilege for a second, permanent underclass Blacks. They have what you call this cool pose that they're not going to, they don't care about school to the extent that if you disrespect us in school from authority figures or anything like that, they're not going to go to school and, and, and do anything on school grounds. As a matter of fact, they prefer to operate away from school because they don't want to attend school. That's the whole idea of what black privilege doesn't necessarily afford. Now, when you get to white privilege, it's a different type of socialization. White males are taught that they control their environment. And that if there is indeed anybody that's giving them a problem, it's going to be a community problem, not an individual problem, but a community problem. So with that, we're not white males are not being socialized to accept ridicule. They're not being socialized to say that not everybody's going to like you. They're not being socialized to take criticism. What they are being socialized is that Anything that anybody brings my way that does not sit with me well is a problem with them and not necessarily me. They're also socialized to say, okay, how do I take care of that problem? And so now it's a symbol of community folks are messing with me. And so that lends itself to a mass shooting. That lends itself to a rampage shooting. That lends itself to you all, whoever I'm shooting at, you are a symbol of my frustration, my anger, my shame, all those kinds of things that, that's going on that's not necessarily in place 
when you start talking about black targeted shooters. So again, with your white male shooters, your mass shootings and your rampage shootings, it's about shooting at symbols, symbols of discontent, symbols of shame, symbols of ridicule, symbols of non-acceptance. Um, it could be a relationship situation where a young lady said, you know, I don't, I don't want to date you, but you're dating someone who doesn't look like the person that feels rejected. So that becomes a symbol. You're looking at maybe a professor or a teacher said that their paper wasn't as good. And I know that sounds very, very trivial. What we have to understand is the way things are now, that the humiliation aspect, the shame of it all gets run and run and run again, and they don't have time to adjust. So in my day, because we didn't have social media, if something happened to me, uh, only the people that were there saw it. Um, if something happens to these kids, it's recorded right away. It goes up on social media and people hit likes and laughs and people are just sort of making you feel less than who you are. So one of the things when we talk about this culture of honor, when we talk about righteous slaughter, even when we talk about cold-blooded murder, all of the, the authors are saying to us is that people sink to a level of shame that the only way that they're going to rise above that level of shame is to replace that shame with pride. Now you say, well, pride, how do you approach pride? That means eliminate any symbol that made you feel ashamed. And so it doesn't even matter if in their mind they made up that they're not going to get out of that situation alive. What matters to them is they have taken it upon themselves, become a controller, um, engage in some vigilante vengeance, if you will, to return at least back into their mind where I at least got back to, got back at the people who are making me feel less than human. And so unfortunately, 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 it involves wrong place, wrong time. It involves symbols. It could just be that you were a student there. That's a symbol of being a student in a location uh, that seemed to uh, disrespect me. The problem with us, and this is why it continues to happen, in my sociological opinion, is we would rather say that there's mental illness involved. And the paper, the research paper that you all read showed that that's true 11% of the time. Small percentage. In reality, mass shootings, rampage shootings, are the result of strategic planning. So some will come back and say mental illness because anybody who's, you know, who's considering doing that, they have lost touch with reality. Right? the contrary, a strategic planner knows exactly what they're doing to get as many kills as possible before resistance can, what, arrive to thwart their plan. They plan it, they have maps, they have lists, they have all these kinds of things. So what would make us uncomfortable because it would say to us that we don't have control of our kids is to say, these folks have engaged in a strategic plan to kill. What we would prefer to say is the difference in these folks is that they are mentally ill. That allows us to feel comfortable and say, okay, so there's a them category. And it is not people that just walk amongst us every day, that there is a them category. So let's take care of them. It's not an everyday white male that walks around and contemplate the, contemplates these things. And so what I often teach my students is that we need to look at the socialization of things and that none of us are safe. And we're only as safe as a person receiving adequate socialization and don't feel as if they have reached a level of shame. Now, Jack Katz says, hey, there are those of us who have been humili humiliated and we were able to endure that humiliation, we going about our life. That's true. So I'm not here to say that 
when you're dealing with human beings because of human agency, everyone who gets humiliated is going to go out and they're going to shoot. What I'm saying is those who can't endure that humiliation will move to that next level, which is chaotic behavior. All right. And chaotic behavior results in rage, which is elimination of the object of your shame. So those are things that I pointed out in the article that that sort of tied white privilege into the idea. And all I'm saying what white privilege is in this instance is how we socialize our young white males not to accept a level, a level of criticism and ridicule and not have any outlet to how you deal with shame other than make it a community problem. How does that tie to, you know, when we think of concepts like white fragility, because you mentioned shame and the idea that, you know, recognizing that maybe you're not, well, for lack of a better phrase, you're not all that. Like mm -hmm. you, there is a community around you and people who don't look like you, who don't sound like you, um, who may be more intelligent or better looking or what have you, like just the stories you tell yourself, you know, but we think about that specifically with white people, at least I'm pointing to like the work of, um, you know, Robin D'Angelo, but like that idea that we're coming to a reckoning that like whiteness isn't your out card to, to deal, to not deal with what is currently going on, many of which is basically attributed to, you know, Eurocentric history. Is that connected to that idea of shame and the, the, the resistance of accepting it or further connecting to a community that represents diversity? Uh, and, and what I have to say about white fragility, uh, again, a lot of it talks about the idea of masculinity being tested and a lot of it talks about it inter and intraracially. Uh, what happens is, is that, and again, in men in general, we give very little room to be sensitive. We get very little room to adjust to disappointment. Um, when you're a minority, you get the talks of life that this can be expected and this is what you must do. With, and I'm talking about white socialization, you may not necessarily get that talk. Hey, take care of your business. We don't wanna hear it, make it happen. The world doesn't cater to that. Taking care of your business doesn't necessarily mean success. And so what's the out when they can't do that? For black men in particular, we have something called a cool pose. It's a psychological nonchalant disposition that we put on, all right? Um, we have been socialized to say, you're going to have to work harder off gate. Minorities are taught, you're going to have to work harder to be, we understand what lack of acceptance is, is about. I don't think white males get that. In terms of their white privilege, this, these are the things that you are entitled to. And so when you mess with that entitlement, you're messing with their sense of, are they fragile? Do they crack? Are they man enough? Because this entitlement is mine. And so if somebody, if they see themselves losing that entitlement, which is better? Do I say that it's my fault? Or do I say that it is unjustly your fault? It comes off better is, I would say, it's unjustly your fault, so therefore I can make my next move. And my next move is to inflict any kind of pain that I feel like is necessary to bring myself back even. I, I, I want to ask a question because, you know, we're taping this episode on the anniversary of January 6th. And mm -hmm. obviously our, our, our last episode was about January 6th and the anniversary and some of the people that we've had on from not only law enforcement and government officials, et cetera, correspondents have covered it, you know, as you're talking and, and, and telling us all of this and everything that's been in that article, I can't help but think, you know, the majority of the makeup of that crowd was white males. 
and you talk about the anger and the frustration and you we saw it play out in what was something that originally was peaceful that then ended up turning violent right and attacks against and we we've all seen the capitol hill police officer uh, harry dunn talking about the racial epithets that were thrown his way what do you make of the january 6th composition of that crowd in relation to what you wrote about the makeup of white shooters acting out where this sense of entitlement this sense of well, I'm white, I can go to the Capitol and, and I can run into a government building. And then we're seeing now over 725 people have been arrested. Only 30 people are in jail. Mm-hmm. Only 30 people. That's less mm-hmm. than 10%. So mm-hmm. I, I think it speaks to the overall system, but I would love to get your take you know, from that uh, sociological aspect about the makeup of that crowd and what they acted out doing that day in relation to the stuff that you've written on about mass shooters and school shooters, particularly? Well, without, without getting political, I think that um, Donald Trump, who is in no way a part of anybody's poor community, um, in no way a part of anybody's disenfranchised community, um, but why was he so attractive to so many people. And I'm not saying they're racist or anything like that. One of the things that Donald Trump did bring to the forefront is first of all, science and reading, education. Eh, Don't necessarily trump anything. How you feel, gut, how you make moves, the way I make moves, the way I think matters more than anything. And he also brought to the forefront that um, appearing less knowledgeable is not going to be the grounds for anybody to tell him that he's not intelligent. What he brought was the fact that you don't have to have respect for the law. Now, again, even though his his followers, his constituents, and his uh, all those folks who, who came to the Capitol will say they respect the letter of the law. We saw that once that collective effervescence happened, and here's the political scene, some would say, well, we went to be a part of this idea that we felt like an election was stolen from us and that our leader um, didn't get the opportunity to lead the country for four more years. They're going to say we went there peacefully. Then there are a group of people that just say, hey, you know, we went there just because we were invited and this is what our president wanted to do. And all of a sudden you get sort of this, this, um, and Durkheim calls it collective effervescence. It's this massive energy to converge. And now people are caught up in the moment. I'm not excusing their behavior. Um, I'll let the, the Justice Department deal with it accordingly. Now, what I think because of the complexion of the protesters, I think that we just didn't think as a country that when it comes to a certain segment or race, they don't necessarily need the same level of social regulation, say, if Black or Brown people had been there. So they were afforded um, some opportunities and chances and some freedoms, if you will, to protest and keep protesting. Whereas if that march had been said that, okay, there's going to be minorities and brown people and they're coming, now we think we understand what their DNA is about. We're going to beef up security and that things are going to be more on point. So I think when we start talking about the racial connection of things, it allows people the opportunity uh, uh, to, to, to relax. And one of the things that Donald Trump 
did do and continues to appear to do is to be above the law and talk badly about people who are in positions of power. And he had no cultural, um, he had no cultural context with respect to, it's going to limit my conversation. He was equally offensive to anybody he wanted to be offensive about. And when you don't have a lot, and I'm not saying that all of Donald Trump's constituents are poor, but when you don't have a lot or you're feeling pressed or you're feeling oppressed or you're feeling suppressed in any way, shape, form or fashion, the last thing you do have, the one thing you can stand on is the fact that I can at least run my mouth and say what I want, independent of anything that's logical, just say what I feel. And that's attractive to a lot of people. I'm just going to say what I feel, regardless of what the sciences say, because the last thing that I have was left in me is the humanity of my voice. Donald Trump didn't necessarily have the positive type of humanity, but he had a level of reflection that, um, again, he continues to be an individual that has a lot of support. So on January the 6th, if, if, you, if people feel like something was stolen from a way of life, an opportunity, now again, let's think. And this is why, you know, when I, when I talk to folks who, who like Barack Obama, you got to realize that there were just as many people upset with the fact that he became president. It was a, it was a death of America to them, you know? So you have this uh, on the heels of that, guess who you have? Make America great again. I know it was terrible for you because you had a two-term president that didn't look like you, but now I'm here and I'm going to make America great again. So all the symbols uh, that folks were looking for, that was the antithesis of Barack Obama was Donald Trump. And to protest that and want something like that to stay is an emotional thing. Um, he doesn't accept defeat. Um, he did have power of voice. He could have easily said, I graciously accept the way things are. Guys, I'm going to try again. Let's beef up and let's do this again. And all this stuff, you know, because they listened to him uh, would have gone away. But you know, in his mentality, it's a show of love and support and how far would they go? Uh, so I think that's what the the sort of situation with January the 6th was all about. It was people unwilling to accept the fact that their way of life was going to change uh, in the way that they were used to for four years. And not only that, that it was taken away from there unfairly. So again, if I match that reality with mass shooters, no, they didn't bring guns and no, they didn't engage in mass shootings, but they engaged in a mass protest and they made their individual feelings a community problem in Washington, D.C. Dr. Kirita, in your research, when, you, when we talk about the findings, or at least from, and I, I tend to think of Columbine as sort of the, I think one of those watershed moments, you know, when we think historically of the advent of, of mass shooting, certainly not the first time it's happened, but one of the most notable events of it. Does the trend tell you that this is a ongoing problem in the sense that it'll continue to get worse? Or are we reaching a point where there's a reckoning and we're starting to understand from a social emotional standpoint what we're what we're dealing with here? And that there's the opportunity to start to think differently from an educational standpoint, from a socialization standpoint, that may potentially start to stem the tide. But in your work, do you point, does it point to that this problem is only going to get worse, perhaps like January 6th? Or is it the trend that we may be starting to better understand the beast, for lack of a better phrase, and what we can do about it? Okay, well, I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to get into um, the gun debate. I think that uh, if, if, if wherever there's a will to kill, there'll be a way. Uh, and whether it could be done as quickly as possible with a gun or not, that, that's up to uh, debate. But my turning point, well, I at least thought, I mean, me, you know, by having a daughter, I thought 
Sandy Hook was going to be it. I thought losing those many kids right before the holidays was going to be our moral, heartfelt, let's move on this. And it didn't happen. And so when I think about how it continues to happen, I don't see a change because one, there is no hesitation to blame mental illness. That's the scapegoat that keeps coming up over and over and over again. There is no uh, hesitation to spend the energy on trying to make those who participate in these types of mass shootings look look really good. So you just think about it for a second. Image is everything. And the last uh, uh, school shooting uh, that we had, I mean, the picture that they put up of this praying hands kid, um, as opposed to what he looks like today, it sends a message that here is a, a young, beautiful kid that for a lot of things, it turned bad. And so what happens is, is you're putting blame and you're trying to explain and explain and explain how all these bad things happen and this generated this kind of outcome. At the end of the day, it, it has to be a situation where we stop thinking that we are better than the kids that we are producing. We have to stop thinking that the lifestyle choices, how we are conditioning our kids to have these social dynamics and hierarchies in the school that everybody is going to accept. We have to stop thinking that everybody processes failure in a certain kind of way. We have to attack the idea that there is entitlement. And when it, this, this belongs to you because you are who you are. And when it's not, if it's not there, you go out and you take it. We have to stop teaching that. So do I see it uh, getting worse? Do I see it changing? I think it's going to continue to have the same pace that it has always had, which is you are going to look at a situation where you, when you think it's calm, it's going to pop back up because there are at least, if the data bears itself out, there are three or four people that's plotting on this to do something two years from now because of this sense of entitlement. I mean, we've all, we're already conditioning another generation of shooters. Now, what do they have? Each and every time something happens, they have an example of how you do it. They have a playbook of how you do it. So even when you think about uh, the young man who went to college in San Bernardino and um, killed these folks because he went to college and he was a virgin. This young man basically said, I am going to go kill women because I am a virgin in college and I don't see why you are not attracted to me, but you're dating these jerks. I drive a BMW, I have some nice clothes, all these kinds of things. So again, what do we, what is in the heads of young men in their sense of entitlement? His rationale was he was entitled to have sex with women, not just women. He had a preference. They had to be blonde. So again, you, you think about these kinds of things. What's the condition? What's, what are we putting out there that's beautiful? What are we putting out there that you are, you are entitled to? And the carrots that we hold in front of people are things that are they reachable? Uh, are, are they teachable? Okay. And if they're not reachable, what's the alternative? The alternative is our access to a violent means to at least in our minds 
get right with ourselves. And this is what Gilligan talks about, that culture of honor. This can I return to honorable status? And for that particular killer who, who went through San Bernardino, he basically said, I'm going to become a god on this day. And so you have a lot of killers said the world is going to remember us, all right? And in their minds, even in death, they're thinking they're going to hit a chart of what it is that they've done. So I really don't have an answer. I'm not into uh, the predicting. I, I certainly hope not, but I, I just don't see, based on my research and based on how I continue to see the socialization of men in general and the sense of white privilege and the sense of black privilege and the sense of folks who uh, will target shoot you and the sense of folks who uh, will come after anybody that's associated with you. Um, in the sense that a lot of young black males will not endure humiliation in any way, shape, form, or fashion. They won't, they won't take a, a fisticuff beating that they will go, particularly this younger generation, and shoot you before they'll fight you because they won't be humiliated. That's the black side of things. Uh, the same thing, the entitlement to, quote unquote, uh, this is what I have to have as a white male. Either if I don't have it, I'm going to take control of it. Those things aren't gone anywhere. They're not gone anywhere. They continue to be socialized on a daily basis and the coping skills for it all right because it happens and people endure it in silence is simply uh, are not there parents are so caught up in their day-to-day -day realities they don't understand how important a day in a life is of a high school kid or a middle school kid we think it's always so trivial oh we think oh when i grew up we used to drink out of water hoses you got you guys are so pampered and we think all these things that it is going to go away. Trust me, you're not going to remember this tomorrow. But that minute in their lifestyle and they get up, and they go to school that next day is a walking hell to them. How do they get out of that? And what access do they have to get out of that? You know, Dr. Kirtan, one of the things I appreciate about you is you kind of cut through everything. You know, hey, I'm not going to talk about guns. Let's look at it realistically from this angle. So I really appreciate that. I want to ask you about a specific example, because we recently had on former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi on. He's an MSNBC uh, news contributor, and, you know, he's their security analyst, and he talks a lot about the work that his, his field office used to do to help school districts get prepared. And you wrote something in, one of your, in this article uh, that we're going to share in our show notes for everybody, but I want to read it here and ask you a question off of it, because you wrote more and more colleges and universities are becoming saddled with budget issues and administrative functions that seem to be turning schools into business operations. It may yes. be time to return to embracing the reality that as educational agents, duties will have to include teaching students, assisting with a student's well-being and risk management. So, you know, the Oxford situation is one that really stands out, not just because of how fresh it was in our minds, but because there was literally warning signs to teachers, just like you wrote in there, that it, right. may, it may start, we may need to start being, you know, risk managers, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, how do you see everything that's happening now with, with what happened in Oxford and the education system? And forget about law enforcement for a second. Can you talk about what teachers at the high school, middle school, even in college settings, what they need to do to act upon what you wrote about in that article. So that way we can kind of avoid some of this or at least try to tamper it down. Yeah. Um, well, let me, let me start with the parent responsibility. Um, I think it's incumbent upon the parents to not think that you're sending your, your kid to school for the te teachers to babysit. Okay. 
And I think there has to be and way past parent to parent teacher conferences and PTA and all those kinds of things. I think education, and this is what W.E.B. Du Bois actually argued, that education needs to be a community education where teachers and parents understand that it's going to take a community to, in fact, uh, have an issue or, or deal with their child. So in, in my regard, now again, let me say this, everything that I'm telling you that I think teachers need to do, it needs to come with a raise. <laughs> the, the, the love of teaching is, is, is not the answer. I mean, it, it's, it's, we, if we're asking teachers to do more, then we need to pay them more. Um, so that being said, when teachers call out kids and call the parents, the thing that I have continued to see is that the teacher gets attacked. What's wrong with the teacher? How dare uh, the teacher say this about my child? And, and all of a sudden it becomes an issue. Not all parents are that way, but enough of them are. I think that when teachers, because they are in many respects, they spend a lot of time with the kids. I think they need to be more respectful of their intuition. Uh, when they do report, now nobody wants their kid to be red flagged or anything like that because of all this labeling and things of that nature. But in, in short, there needs to be a stronger coalition of a relationship between teachers, parents, and all those folks who are indeed a part of educating kids. I think there needs to be a new wing, a new organization in schools. I think in one school, they have fathers go to school. The fathers show up, those who are retired, and they go to school, and they greet the kids in the hall, and uh, the violence has decreased because they were having violence every day. Dad's on campus, I think it is. Uh, these are kinds of things that, that, that need to happen, is allowing um, a community to return to, to school grounds, perhaps parents on their day off. And I know the parents are not going to like this because this is my day off. I mean, we're really, really concerned on your day off. I mean, can you just at some point connect with teachers, go sit in on the classrooms? Or um, there's a lot of situations where there's volunteer opportunities. Uh, all counties have that where you go on websites, you sign up, you say what class you can substitute on. I think the presence of parents on school grounds uh, and seeing that there is a relationship between parents and teachers will allow kids to see that this teacher can call my mom and be just as effective as an auntie calling my mom or dad and reporting my behavior. So I'm thinking a stronger coalition needs to be there. Policing, um, when they get calls and they think about this idea, what is their responsibility and what was the oversight and what was all these kinds of things? Are we in a society where we are allowing police degrees of freedom to make these kind of errors when it comes to our kids. Like, okay, this is a situation. What if we're wrong? Parents don't put up with the fact that people are calling out their kids, particularly legal agents, and that they're wrong. So it may make police officers more hesitant to, to, to make these kinds of, of moves. So again, you know, this is just outside of being, you know, racially brought into that type of argument. So when you think about the coalition, you're thinking about teachers and then, OK, what about administrators? In, in many respects, um, I'm, I'm not a fan of trying to teach a curriculum just for testing. Uh, I am a fan of teaching kids to their strengths. It keeps them engaged. It keeps them interested in school. It keeps them wanting to uh, go to school. I am also in favor of a new coalition on school grounds that monitors uh, kids' social media, because a lot of that stuff uh, is certainly planned out. You say, well, that, that's sort of intrusion, but we're doing it anyway. 
Um, there are a lot of people and a lot of jobs that are social media engineers where they monitor tweets and things and things of that nature. So why can't we do that for schools? What I'm asking for are the types of changes that's going to require a monetary investment, a lot of it, to get people to a point where if you want them to do extra, you're going to say this comes, quote unquote, with extra pay. Uh, and I think you're going to get a, a bigger turnover, a bigger sense of involvement, uh, a bigger sense of, yes, we care about the extended life of your kid uh, with respect to educating kids. So parents are very close-minded about a lot of things. If your kid is having a bad day, I mean, shouldn't a teacher know that? Uh, like, you know, hey, you know, we may be going through this. We may be going through that. But you send that kid to school with all these problems, and then the teacher has an issue with trying to teach that person. The kid is upset, so nobody in the classroom is going to learn. So a coalition of all these things need to take place. To that, to that end, when you talk about, and we've, in our previous episode together, you'd mentioned like in in K eight settings, you know, the focus around standards, the focus around standardized testing is is not really addressing this issue. Is part of it also rethinking the role that social emotional learning itself is when you map curriculum in like insisting like there is a part of it that's talking about whole child development does that thinking sort of speak to what you're talking about in making a learning environment not just about you know the three r's right reading writing arithmetic um but also understanding the whole child and focusing on their development and assessing development from the standpoint of is this per, is this person learning not necessarily what they're learning but are they learning and growing are they positioning themselves to be a lifelong learner and what as a community are we doing to support them around that is that part of the again there is no easy answer to anyone listening to the show obviously that's not what we're trying to achieve here but is part of that also rethinking like when we design curriculum where's the role about whole child development so here's where people are going to say well he's obviously not an educator he's obviously never been in the high school and all these kinds of things he's speaking strictly as a college professor but just uh, being a father and, and, and being a, a mentor to a lot of young men, there are just things in a standard curriculum that they are not interested in. They're not. And this is what I mean by teaching the curriculum to test taking all those kinds of things. If this was a world of according to curative, I would, in terms of middle school and high school, I would start approaching that like we do on college campuses. What are kids interested in? What kinds of majors or institutions can uh, we, we be dealing with? So if you have a kid that's, that's always been interested in cars, well, what kinds of classes that are consistent with that? Well, I see in this uh, chemistry classes talking about, you know, a combination of chemicals to run a test experiment or biology that he may not necessarily be uh, interested in. So again, I, I think that at the beginning, of your middle school and high school, we need to get to the idea of what kids are interested in. And some say, this is what charter schools are about, this is what Montessori schools are about, and all those kinds of things. But I'm talking about a general education, you know, in a, in a public institution should be about the business of, okay, what is the interest of the kids? I mean, are kids going to be able to major or minor, be get, get preparation to things that are useful to them? Maybe you have a kid that's, hey, man, I don't want to sit in class, but I want to be an apprentice. I mean, can can I do that at the high school level? Why do I have to wait to my junior, senior year and start talking about vocational education? Why can't I come in in my ninth grade year and, and, and learn about construction and, and learn about the things that I'm interested in and, as opposed to 
having to sit through these mandatory classes and, and test take where I may not necessarily be good at. It, and then all of a sudden, I'm standardized test taking in minutes. And if I don't answer right, then there's a score that says, you know, standardized wise, I may not be as smart as everybody else, but I'm really, really talented over here. So and I know I, I know it takes a lot of work and I, and I know that it's fantasy land, but I'm not talking about this independent of having some money to do this. I don't know where that money's going to come from, but I know we have money if we really, really care. But what I'm saying to you is, is that a solid curriculum in place, already set up, may not be the way to go. It may not be the way to go for, for, for every kid. Um, I can only speak from like on the college level. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that there was a major in sociology because I wasn't interested in anything else. And I may not have been interested in going to class if there wasn't criminology and gangs and subcultures. These were the things that interested me. And if the, if the university didn't offer that, uh, I don't know what I would have done. I don't know what I would have done. I was not interested in anything else. Now, imagine school being that way, that there's nothing in school that I'm interested in. So the next thing I'm going to be interested in is getting in trouble. I'm going to be concentrating on something else. So again, we have even at that level, there has to be an element of where can we meet these kids earlier on as opposed to take these standard things and then move on. I mean, I understand there should be classes. And I mean, for me, back in my day, I'm going to date myself. We had to take home economics, even when we were, you know, as, as men, we had to take it. Yep. Basic class on home economics. Um, it was fun. And it wasn't the, the sort of most masculine thing to do. I mean, there were a lot of girls in there, but it wasn't the most masculine thing to do, but you learn something. Um, people call this adulting. What are the adulting skills that need to be learned? Uh, I mean, there's these kids these days, they don't even know how to use a dictionary, man, because they don't have to use a dictionary. They don't know how to go to the library because you don't have to know how to read call numbers anymore. So what is it that we're doing in terms of education? I know Folks are going to email me and say, hey, well, you need to come to my school and see how we're doing things here. I'm not saying that you're not addressing the issue. I'm saying that just like I get evaluations every year and I have to improve my classes to meet the students' needs, I have to do that at every level. Uh, you mentioned email. We're going to put your email in the show notes. So if you want to email Dr. Kirtan, you can absolutely email him. Uh, we're going to put the article that he you know, shared with us about everything that we discussed on the program today, Dr. Stephen Kirtan, thank you so much for hopping back on the podcast. You no are going to be in the three-time club. You're going to be one of the first ones in there. So okay. we thank you so much for hopping on with us and stay safe. Happy new year and continued success to you, my friend. All right. Take care guys. Happy new year. Today's episode of the pod is presented by the good folks at BetterHelp, betterhelp.com. Uh, Nick, is something preventing you from achieving your goals? What interferes with your happiness? My kids. No, I'm just messing. <laughs> no, I no, I, I love. They better kids. help no. clip that. <laughs> no, no. Um, that's a great question, man. I feel like I need more time to process that. But um, I, I would say it's me. I think, like most people, I, I think we tend to get in the way of our own pursuit of happiness for a variety of reasons. You know, obviously, I coach by trade, so um, that's a lot of the work that I do. But BetterHelp's an amazing service, man. Tell them more about it, Mike. You know, 
That is some great insight right there. BetterHelp, if you're listening, Nick's available to be a therapist because BetterHelp we'll slow will slow down that one. But <laughs> right. Well, they'll still go through the vetting process, but of course, BetterHelp will assess your needs. They match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You know, mental health is big these days, folks. And and, and, and seriously, you know, you're seeing companies start new initiatives you know, to give employees days off. The company I work at has done something recently to, to try to give a week off to people. I know a lot of people in the technology space are overworked during the holidays. You're trying to create all this great content and these new streaming services. And, you know, you you get a little fried and BetterHelp is there. It connects you in a safe, private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, listen, it's not a it's not a crisis line. It's not a self-help. It's a it's a professional counseling done securely online. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and you get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Nobody hates sitting in a waiting room more than me. Uh, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is also available for clients worldwide, and you can find the particular expertise you need online. Don't limit yourself to the counselors just located near you. It's available in all 50 states. If you want to start living a happier life today, as a listener of Can We Please Talk, you're going to get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com backslash listener. Join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com backslash listener. All right, that, that was Dr. Stephen Kirtan. Our thank yous to Dr. Stephen Kirtan for coming on the podcast again, a member of the two-time club exclusivity, Nick, two-time club no one yet in the three-time club. Uh, quick take on some of the stuff that we talked about there, you know, with not so much white fragility, but, you know, this makeup of male shooters and the difference between what white shooters do and what black shooters do. You know, he mentioned targeted versus what white shooters do. Uh, give me some some of your takeaways from the interview. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I, I would suggest to anyone to read the article. Uh, I think oftentimes in the media, um, way too many conversations, we are really being a little bit reckless with the way we think about um, school shooting. You know, when we think about the trends racially or gender wise, you know, and we will throw that around say, well, most school shooters are white, right? Oh, yeah, but it's it's important to understand sociologically like why that's happening. It's the one thing, it's something that we appreciate about having Dr. Dr. Kirtan on the show to always come back to sort of talk about from a research standpoint, what is what is this all telling us? You know, and his article on hulking out is just really mind-blowing in the sense that it really demystifies this idea that you can put all of this activity and you know these acts of violence under the heading of mental illness. It's not the case, actually. That's why I would recommend anyone reading it. So it was a fa- it was a fantastic article. I appreciated him being able to speak to just more clearly, you know, what is this meaning from a, a larger trend standpoint? And you know, he talked about sadly the shooting in Sandy Hook, and he's not the first to say that that seemed to be you deciding. Said, you've said that before, yeah. Well, I'm only copying probably the most. I don't even know who tweeted this, but Jamel Hill every now and then puts that back up. But it's the most telling. Like we did nothing for that. And that probably ended the gun debate in America at that point. And I'm not bringing that back here, but I think Dr. Kirtan's research, I think his findings are critical and I think it's important. And we also connected to what we saw with, um, with Frank, 
know, when we interviewed Frank Figluzzi of the FBI, yeah. you know, talking about, you know, how do you pay attention to these trends and what's really going on when we try to understand violence in schools? Yeah, listen, Dr. Kirtan's article is going to be available on our show notes page right now. You can click on the link there to read this. It's about 15, 16 pages. Uh, fantastic work that he does. Follow him on social media um, for this episode, for this show. Follow us on social media, IG, TikTok, Twitter, at Can We Please Talk Podcast on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. If you want to email us, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. If you want to talk about any of the topics that we've discussed in the show, or even how to find out how to get in touch with guests. A thank you to all the listeners, a happy belated new year. Since Nick and I is our first episode taping back. We thank each and every one of you as always. I'm Mike Leon. Proud to be on this show and do the work that we do. I'm Nick Sverry. Have a good one, everybody. ready for truly hydrated skin meet hyaluronic body serum a breakthrough in body care from osea it's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161 percent their lightweight fast absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.